1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com culture. And by Volvo, experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash U.S. The following podcast contains explicit language. Stephen Meccaff, this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Hater's gonna hate, hacker's gonna hack, gawker's gonna gawk edition. It's Wednesday, July 22nd, 2015. On today's show, Trainwreck is the new movie. It's written by Amy Schumer. It also stars her as a damaged but lovable commitment phobe. And then the new cyberpunk thriller, Mr. Robot, on USA Network is getting raves. And finally, hot mess and a collapsing Chinese wall at Gawker Media. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Uh, welcome back. Uh, thanks. Was I away last week? You were never away. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was here.
2: <laughs> oh welcome God. back to Steve's consciousness. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a joy um, to return, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: a joy to have you back, and Dana. Um, Dana, welcome back as well from your from your book leave. <laughs> I, I know I never leave the
2: moment. confines of your brain. <laughs> Is this Steve?
0: like Rip Van Steve edition? <laughs>
1: i don't know i I've, clearly i'm a little bit off kilter okay so you were both here last week is that what you're telling we you?
0: all were <laughs> i think
1: and dana stevens is the film critic of slate.com hello dana hey steve all right before we dig in uh julia what do we have on uh Slat plus today
0: all right. Producer Ann Happerman has traced down that yeti of the wilderness, the male vocal fry. We're going to touch base on the state of uh, the policing of women's voices and how we feel when our listeners police our own in our Slate Plus segment this week.
1: Ah, sounds good. All right. Moving on. In Trainwreck, the comedian and Amy Schumer plays Amy, a journalist at a lowbrow rag assigned a profile of a sports surgeon played by Bill Hader. What follows is an untraditional rom-com about a woman hopelessly damaged by the father she still loves and her struggle to find the self-esteem necessary to fall in love. It comes in the traditional Judd Apatow package. That is, it's spacious, loose, funny, an exploration of maturity stocked with often deliciously immature gags. Let's listen to a clip.
3: So, uh, off the record, do you want to maybe go grab some dinner?
0: Um, actually, Aaron, I think you're so great. And, uh, but I'm a writer. I'm your writer. You're my subject. And uh, from now on, we, we need to just keep it professional. Okay. You know?
3: Yeah. Okay. I think we really like each other, and we should start dating. N-
1: no, I'm I'm saying... I'm confused. I, am I not communicating this right? Like,
0: I,
3: I. No, I hear you. I'm just saying I disagree. Do you like me? Yeah. Yeah, see, I really like you. So we should be a couple.
1: <laughs> no, no. It... I, I have pl- plans.
3: What are your plans? Dentist. Is that true? No
2: you know, I'm glad we chose that clip because it actually brings something up in this movie that nobody in the movie seems to mind, but that seems like in real life it would be a problem, which is that Amy Schumer's character is a journalist who's profiling Bill Hader's character, a sports doctor, and yet they sleep together and have this big affair, and it seems like a giant journalistic ethics dilemma that's never addressed in the movie. Oh, my God. Years.
0: Okay, brief sidebar. Why is every person in a rom-com a magazine journalist, and why do they all have such terrible ethics? This happened with the, the <laughs> Chris Rock movie, Top 5, too. Yeah, this movie
2: isn't quite as ignorant about how journalism works as Top five, in which somehow the head film critic of the New York Times is writing under a pseudonym and no one knows who they are. But, <laughs> but there is something fishy about the way she actively pursues writing a lengthy profile of this man while having a tempestuous affair with him. Yes, stipulated. Oh, but
1: wait, 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 wait. Let's not pretend that that never happens, right?
2: Well, but it does. I'm just saying that it doesn't become in any way a conflict or problem in the movie. In yeah. fact, not to spoil anything, but, you know, everything is, turns out pretty hunky-dory, both on the journalistic and the romantic side.
1: Okay, but give us your take on the movie as a movie. Did you like it?
2: You know, I tremendously enjoyed it, but I think it was more for Amy Schumer than for the movie itself. To me, This, to me, sort of felt like the arrival of Amy Schumer on the big screen as a movie star, not just a sketch comedian on TV. And that in itself felt like the main event. She wrote the script as well by herself. It's scripted by her and starring her. And so it felt like an Amy Schumer movie in some way, even though, as you say, Steve, it is directed by Judd Apatow and has that Judd Apatowian capaciousness, which you can either regard as kind of emotionally generous, that all his movies are 20 minutes too long, or you can regard it as really Really shaggy and annoying, and this movie sort of, uh, I would say, ping-ponged back and forth between those those
0: two feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia, what do you what do you think of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, on the structural front, the shagginess has great upsides in that we really spend a lot of time with Amy Schumer's character's family. Her dad played really well, I think, by Colin Quinn, and her sister played played by Brie Larson. Those relationships are not pat and technicolor and goofy in the manner of the sidebar relationships in a lot of romantic comedies. They feel really genuine and really moving. And various uh, incidents in those relationships made me cry at various points in the movies. And I loved that. I actually felt like more of the shagginess came from a shoehorning in of comic set pieces. You know, there's one scene where a bunch of like sports figures show up for what's apparently supposed to be like a laugh a minute shtick set. And it just... That was just screaming. Cutting room floor. Snip, snip, snip. snip, snip. Mm -hmm. Like literally the only funny thing, it's like a 10 minute scene, and it features uh, Matthew Broderick in a cameo. And the only funny thing in it is that somebody makes a joke about War Games, and Matthew Broderick breaks. Like you can see the actor, like, giggle at the War Games (laughs) line, which makes you feel like it's an improvisation. And just in the moment of how Bill Hader's character breaking on SNL, like that was the only funny thing in that 10 minute
2: scene. As someone who doesn't like when comedians break up, including
0: Bill Hader on SNL, that was another downside of that scene. All right. So no redeeming value. So it was very shaggy. I mean, to me, the thing that was complicated about it is that I really admire Amy Schumer. I think she's very funny. And I liked a lot about this movie, and it made me weep several times. So it was very moving and affecting and totally an enjoyable night. But this movie also scrambled my brain in a certain way, and I'm still kind of puzzling through what I made of it because I didn't entirely find the Amy Schumer character believable, and I can't decide if that is a fault of the movies or of my own inner sexist. She's this incredibly callous woman who's very cruel to lots of people in her life. She sleeps around with no apparent dents to her own emotional carapace. And I didn't entirely buy it. And maybe that's just my limited imagination about the varieties of modern womanhood. But I don't know. In a way, it's like, oh, it's so exciting. Judd Apatow is finally making a movie with a female protagonist. And then this movie feels a little bit like um, he's made a movie with a female protagonist just doing male rom-com shtick. And maybe that in and of itself is is revolutionary and amazing you mean? You think she's playing a sexist stereotype? She's just playing the dude. She's playing the dude in a romantic mm-hmm. comedy. Like this is the this is the convention, right? The guy, he's he doesn't understand his mushy heart within. He has to learn to find it and that in and of itself is like a a revolution and lovely and so maybe i should just applaud it but i found it hard to but
2: why did dudes have have the hold the deed on being emotionally alienated and slutty and having a hard time with their dads or all the other things that are happening to her i mean couldn't she just be seen as a person who's being a jerk of course they don't
0: of course they don't everything you say is true i just didn't quite like buy her character as it as an and i can't decide whether it's that i think she's a great sketch comedian and I don't totally buy her as an actress all the way through. Although some of the scenes of great emotional import really moved me and I did buy. But the the kind of tonal shift between sticky jokey and I'm having a real conversation with my sister about our lives and our family. Like I didn't always feel like that was entirely smooth. So anyway, I can't decide if I'm finding fault in the movie or myself.
1: So I sort of side with Dana in this uh, minor disagreement. I think having the woman as the effed up commitment phobe is enough of a novel gesture for the movie to feel intrinsically somehow important. She's the perfect writer-actress to pull it off. I also liked about the film that, unlike in the situation where it's just a given that men in rom-coms can be effed up commitment phobes, an actual explanation is given in this film for precisely why. In fact, the opening scene of the movie is gives the explanation, really, which is that the father was himself such a person. He was a philanderer. He gives this very funny very tortured explanation. It's a flashback to his two very young daughters, one of whom is Amy, grows up to be Amy Schumer, about why he can't stay committed to their mother. I thought that the fact that they gave a causal explanation for the pain that makes this woman unable to love and commit was a very convincing one. And furthermore, they then didn't Simplify it by making the father a monster. Um, and in fact, to me, by far and away, the most affecting moment of the movie is she's asked to give a ceremonial speech about her father that's both describes her love and her hatred for him in a very convincing way. And and that's the Apatow shagginess allows for many, I agree, Julia, very true emotional moments. It's a big bag. A lot of stuff fits in it. But it also allowed room for some of my least favorite things in the movie. LeBron James is in the film, I think, strategically in order to butch it up for male viewers. He's pretty good in it. It's an upside surprise. He delivers his lines really well. He's extremely personable. But it was a great example of the shagginess getting the better of itself because there are two main LeBron jokes. One is that he's this super sensitive confidant for Bill Hader, the main male character. So totally out of expected character, LeBron is very much about exploring feelings and you know, sort of has this kind of amusingly encounter group vocabulary for discussing relationships. It's a very good <laughs> joke. And then there's a second LeBron joke that he then gives advice that only applies to LeBron James, like, i.e., a world-famous athlete worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The problem is, the, each, each of these jokes is very funny. The problem is they cancel each other out. And it sort of shows the way in which the stand-up comedian mentality is behind too much of the authorship of the film, i.e., going for a joke and losing some pointedness and consistency. But all in all, I like the movie. I mean, I think it's, in its own weird way, kind of an important movie, and it has some, um, some truly great moments.
2: Yeah, I kind of agree, Steve, that there's something important feeling about this movie. And it's a strange thing to say about what's in many ways a pretty standard summer rom-com that I won't get into the ending so as not to spoil. But, you know, you can imagine that the ending of a romantic comedy directed by Judd Apatow hits a lot of very familiar chords for the end of a romantic comedy. Which, as you were saying, Julia, the whole setup of the beginning of this movie is so unconventional and the heroine is so unconventional that some of the things that happen in that last scene and the way in which, you know, they're separated in the last act and then find their way back together felt way over familiar that it had made it past, you know, whatever vetters were vetting the script. Like, wait, this doesn't feel like the right beat for this story. Mm.
0: Yeah, I actually loved the end in a weird way. There's a great set piece at the end, I won't spoil it too much, but in which Amy Schumer performs an act of classic sexed-up, vamped-up femininity, and she performs it in a way that is at once totally endearing and cute and also shows the extreme gulf between any normal charming woman and any professional sex pot. You are both charmed by her and you laugh at the vast gulf between normal women and the types of women who typically occupy the center of a rom-com and its clothes, right? And... That, to me, felt like the most radical moment in the film. I loved that scene. I thought it was like perfect. And in a weird way, I felt like the conventionalness of the structure of the film's ending didn't bother me because it sets up that just amazing bit of physical comedy and political commentary. And the fact that a woman like Amy Schumer, who makes a point of discussing the politics of her appearance and her authorship and her comedy, to me, the the ending felt perfect. It, It felt weirdly uninventive, but also perfect.
2: I would encourage people who want to hear my true unfettered feelings about the ending to listen to the spoiler special I taped on this movie with Anne Helen Peterson from BuzzFeed, because I can't get into it here. But yeah, there was some stuff about the, about that very scene that you loved. As much as it's great to see Amy Schumer do any kind of physical comedy, she is actually a true physical comedian who gets to do some pratfalls and funny walks and dancing and stuff in this movie that allows her to use her body in a funny way, and I love all of that. But some of the values that that expression was being used in support of in the last scene were something that I thought maybe I had a problem mm.
1: with. I love the idea of the true, unfettered Dana Stevens. Is it, does it sound sort of like the opening monologue from Mark Maron from <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, what the fuckin' haters! To the sounds of Gamelon, I'm Dana Stevens. What the fuck? All right, well, the movie came in third, as I understand it, behind Minions and uh, the Paul Rudd Ant-Man, with a respectable 30 million. Is the world ready for a gender reversal rom-com?
0: I hope so. I mean, I really liked this movie. I guess I'm just curious whether you guys had any sense of reservation in the way that I did. Like, I admired this movie. I was moved by this movie. I laughed at this movie, although I think maybe I laughed a little less than I was filled with admiration and tears, which is maybe part of my response. But there was something about it that just felt a little inconsistent or uneven, and I wasn't sure if it was her acting or the the believability of the character. I agree that they give it a backstory. Steve but I still found it just so slightly cartoonish in its mm-hmm. in its fecklessness at the beginning that it was a little hard to believe the transformation and I also felt like there was just so much tonal variation in the movie there was sort of the the family world which was incredibly grounded and moving there was the relationship which is really snappy and fun and it's amazing to see Bill Hader playing such a straight man. I mean, he's so funny and he actually d- did an interview with Brian Koppelman on The Moment where he talked about how part of making this movie was learning to like dial himself back and not be the comedy set piece and let it be Amy's movie, which I thought was really interesting. But th- I think their relationship works and is sweet and has real chemistry. But then there's the magazine world which is sort of funny and has, you know, funny side characters. There's Tilda Swinton playing an amazing kind of goof on all of the imperious editor ladies that have ever been in movies. I'm going to take all of my editorial cues from from Tilda Swinton from now on and Mm -hmm. just start talking and dressing like her. Spray tan it right away. Oh, yeah. Um, Spray tan, like pearlescent peach lip gloss and um, just a lot of sneering disdain for people's feelings. That's going to be my strategy from henceforth. Um, And, you know, that felt like out of a Kate Hudson rom-com. You know, the family stuff feels like it's out of a more heartfelt kind of mumblecore real-world rom-com of some kind. And then there's the sports stuff, which honestly doesn't feel too many levels above... You know, just right—the movie with Queen Latifah in Common, like that. Just all of the sports stuff just felt kind of goofy and sticky. I agree that LeBron was a bright point. The, the third joke they make about LeBron is that he's like a real skinflint, which is mm, le- which yeah, actually yeah, is weirdly funny. fun. Yeah. But I agree, the stuff about Cleveland was kind of goofy. And you know, if he's really such an empath, it would be weird for him to be so unempathic in this other way. But they sort of felt like—I guess that's another factor of the shagginess. It's like different tones stitched together and you know Amy the comedian and Amy the feminist holding it all together and Amy the actress really delivering in certain scenes but I wasn't sure there was like a total true through line between all of these worlds and it didn't quite transcend I didn't walk out of the movie like on a high feeling like mm-hmm. that's a transcendent piece of I art I agree
2: and I, I think that in part is a function of Apatow being in a way the impresario who made a framework in which Amy Schumer could happen on screen you know I mean essentially that is what happened and he said in interviews before that he heard her I think on Howard Stern talking about her personal life it is true that her father has MS she actually does have a younger sister with the same name Kim as the Brelar Character, there's a lot of autobiography in that family part of the story, and I think also in the difficulty in committing and you know not not knowing how to kind of go forward with a monogamous relationship part of the story. And Apatow heard her telling all those stories on Howard Stern and called her and said, "Do you know that you're not just a sketch comedian, but you're a storyteller, and you should write a screenplay." And I have this feeling that you know in the sort of the same way that he helped make girls happen for Lena Dunham because he spotted her talent, that he wanted to do something like that for Amy Schumer, and that you feel those constraints, you know, the constraints of having to do it. In in a summer rom-com with these sort of Apotovian, you know, constrictions around it. Or lack of constrictions in a way, because as we're all saying, it's very loose and shaggy and everything but the kitchen sink is thrown in there. But it her authorship feels very strong, but not as strong as it, as it could be. In fact, I may be writing something on this this week, sort of what's next for Amy Schumer. You know, she seems to be having such a powerful moment in the culture and to be emerging as something more than just a stand-up comedian. And, you know, how could she sort of form that into her next film or next project that might express her, her vision more completely?
1: Mm, okay. Well, the movie is Trainwreck. It is directed by Judd Apatow. It stars Amy Schumer, who also wrote it. It's based on her own life experiences. We all basically liked it. We'd love to hear it. You think about it. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and let us know. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
0: This week, Steve, we are sponsored by The Great Courses. And this is a super appropriate sponsor for our listenership, because I think, like us, you guys all like to continue learning and expanding your brains all the time. And The Great Courses is a great way to do that. They put together these incredible multimedia courses presented by top professors and experts in their fields. And one course that I particularly think is great is The Everyday Gourmet, Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, which was developed in partnership with the Culinary Institute of America. If you are like me, you love cooking. It is very satisfying to make a delicious meal, but you don't do it often enough and you never really learned anything official about it from the moment you stepped out of your family home, whenever that was. And what I love about this course is it gives you baseline skills that you can apply in whatever recipe you, you beg, borrow, or steal, whether you're going to the Times' cooking app or you're a devotee of Smitten Kitchen or wherever you find your cooking inspiration. You're just messing around with the ingredients that are left in your fridge. You can still elevate what you're doing if you understand the basics of sauces or knife work or poaching or grilling. And this course really lays out all of those basics uh, in a really easy-to-comprehend way. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary this year and has over 500 courses and topics available, including history, science, literature, and more. The Great Courses has created a special limited-time offer just for you guys. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Rediscovering the Lost Art of Cooking, at up to 80% off the original price. That's an 80% savings, only available for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash culture. That's thegreatcourses.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: All right, moving on. Mr. Robot is the new paranoia thriller in the cyberpunk mode. From the USA Network, it stars Rami Malek as a young hacker ethic employee of a cybersecurity firm. He's a bug-eyed programmer in a hoodie with a softly menacing disposition, a garret dweller with a goldfish named QWERTY, and a morphine habit. He believes he is on the verge of unraveling the largest conspiracy in human history, or does he just suffer from delusions? Let's listen to a clip.
3: I know. I broke my own rule, but I have no Suboxone. What I do have? Clinical depression, social anxiety, a day job, a night job, confusing relationships, others depending on me, taking down the largest corporation in the world. And I chose it all. This line has wanted to own me my whole life. Biosynthesized in some lab in Mexico, packed into a pill, shipped to the states where it was packaged with a logo and taxed by the government, stolen by a bribe guard, sold to a Vera henchman, oversold to Shayla, and then to me. It needs me, just as much as I need it. The moment was destined, every choice bringing me closer to this one line. This line. This last line. I promise.
2: So that last snorting sound you hear is the Rami Malek character um, snorting up a line of morphine, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. And we debated whether or not to use that clip in the studio just now because it's sort of so relentlessly hectoring and unpleasant a monologue. But I think it is actually pretty exemplary of the voiceover of the show, which is a very present element, the voiceover. It's not just beginning and end. He'll pop up in the middle. The voiceover has this strange complicity where he seems to be addressing us and breaking the fourth wall and bringing us into his brain. So even though that was a really irritating clip to hear, I think it does... Does <laughs> give you a sense of what the show feels
0: like. Oh, it's so sad though because the voiceover of the show and the politics and writerly voice of the show are distinctive, but aggressive and maybe ultimately slightly facile. But the show, I think, is really interesting. It does so many things that are surprising and interesting. So I feel sad that that's our listener's first impression if they haven't been watching the show. (laughs) Well, but
2: one Mm -hmm. of the things that it does that's surprising and interesting is have this protagonist who is so aggressively unlikable. And we just talked about Amy Schumer's protagonist in Trainwreck. I mean, she is an adorable valentine of a protagonist compared to this very, very hard-to-like guy who has no social skills, takes drugs, basically turns off
0: everyone he meets immediately. Oh, this guy's such a noble puppy with principles, though. I mean, <laughs> he's like a little strident, but on the range of unlikable protagonists of the golden age of unlikable protagonist television, I think he's actually like pretty likable. <laughs>
2: oh, but please, I was so takes much in raz- that puppy. Excuse <laughs> me, he fucking like, That she can't take care of because he's a drug addict, so he has to farm it out all the time to his dealer.
1: <laughs> oh dear. Anyway. Um, I like the show for having the seeming so far to have the courage of its angry convictions. It seems to me a lot of shows like this would want to hint at a profoundly disaffected anti-corporate hero, but wouldn't really give him the full voice of someone young and that disaffected and strident, to use your word, Julia. And in this one, I think that they did. He you know, when he says he hates Facebook, they don't give it some pseudonym in order to kind of cover their own butts. Uh, He names throughout, he's identified the face of evil in the modern world as Tom Brady. There's nothing not to love about that. (laughs) I liked that. I mean, I thought, in order to pull a show like this off, you're gonna, Dana, I think you're gonna have to make him a little bit of sandpaper, real sandpaper. He's gonna have to be You know, he's irritating to the people around him. He may be delusional.
2: Yeah. And he's an unreliable narrator, which is a very interesting aspect of the show.
1: Yes. I think you you need to flavor him with some genuine unpleasantness. And that's a a bold choice. And I think they took it. I like it very much so far. Dana, you going to stick with it?
2: Probably not, just because of the grating, hectoring tone, but I will admit that it is completely original. It is it is extremely original. We should talk a little bit about what he does, this, this morphine-snorting hacker, when he's not at his day job at a cybersecurity
0: corporation. Well, so what I love about it is that it, it feels both distinctive and original, and also you can totally understand why it was greenlit at this particular moment, right? It's set in a world of hacking. We live in the age of Anonymous and Edward Snowden and the Sony hacks of the OPM hack of the Ashley Madison hack this week. Like, you know, there have been shows about hackers and, you know, computer savants forever. We've discussed my love for the great ne- early 90s film Sneakers on this show, like the hacker with a heart of gold.
2: Wait, this whole topic was just an excuse for a sneakers plug, wasn't it, Julia Turner? <laughs>
0: I didn't know what it was about until we watched it. So, so, no, but I was happy to find the opportunity to run. But, you know, the hacker with a heart of gold, this is like a trope. This happens all the time. This is not. This is sort of familiar, but it's a great moment for it because we live in this time of increased hacking and increased awareness of hacking. And it also, you know, is very anti 1%. It's got a little bit of occupy rhetoric. There's the protagonist who starts as a kind of drug addicted depressive dysfunctional, reluctant member of a corporate security firm who's forced to use his hacking skills to protect the very companies that he loathes, eventually falls in with a rogue hacker group called F Society, led by Christian Slater, who seems to just be sort of his
1: Heather's character grown up into a, you know, an, an
0: <laughs> anarchist. It's like, right, I guess that's really... I mean,
1: he's the, he's the anti-Tilda Swinton, right? Like, you have to check the credits at the end of a film to convince yourself that really was a new guise of Tilda Swinton, whereas Christian Slater is like garlic once there's a tincture of <laughs> it, it's garlicky. I
2: mean, which is proven when he runs his voice through a filter with a mask, a kind of a clownish mask on his face in order to make his you know terrifying demands on TV, and you keep thinking the whole time, that's Christian Slater. That's I would Christian recognize Slater and in a
0: vocoder. There's something about the cadence of it, and it already sounds a little bit robotic. So anyway, so he joins this rogue society led by Christian Slater, which seems very clearly patterned on A version of Anonymous, even that mask that appears feels like a version of the Guy Fawkes mask that's associated with the Anonymous movement. So it's very of the moment. And yet the execution of it feels really distinctive. And I think part of that is the visuals. Uh, The first episode was directed by Niels Arden Ope. who I think was the guy who directed the first adaptation of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and it looks really cinematic. The color scheme is very subdued and it kind of looks Instagram filtered with a lot of the color bleached out of it. The vision of New York that it offers is, is really distinctive. It's set in New York and it has a real way with New York extras, like there's all kinds of characters on the street of the sort that you actually find in New York, the goofy, the sinister, the crazy seeming that feel very distinct from the kind of like buttoned up types who jog along in the background of your typical set in New York show that's shot on a lot somewhere in California. The music, I think, is really good. And then this the production design and the decision to do the legal work required, or, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear more about what the approach actually was, but to actually include You know, shots of Facebook, shots of Twitter, real tweets from the Wall Street Journal's Twitter feed to take the rhetoric, the anti-corporate rhetoric, and not put it in some hypothetical world full of fake companies and have all the computer screens and all the work that they're doing come up in these like bleepy, bloopy, fake interfaces that you're just supposed to read as Facebook-like or Twitter-like seems really important to the authenticity of the show and so arresting that it makes you realize how much those legal constraints do color the world that we typically see in serious design. And all of those things seem excellent. I also think the performances and the casting are really good. The casting director has an insane fetish for heavy-lidded people. Rami Malek has crazy heavy lids. His blonde love interest at the, the Amanda firm Seyfried is like a, he has kind of like a poor man's Amanda Seyfried, although I don't know why I say poor man, She seems great. She also is heavy-lidded. There's a terrific icy villain character who's got heavy eyelids. Anyway, there's great casting. My The main problem, I think, and I hate hate to say it, because this seems very much the vision of Sam Esmail, the creator, but the writing is just, oh, God, it is so heavy handed. There's like nary a light touch. I don't know what the opposite of a light touch is, a like leaden plotting. But, the, okay. but all of this political stuff is handled with a lot of like, self importance and dentorianness that just feels uh, hectoring. Like, I, I'm not sure I'm going to keep watching for that.
1: No, I agree. And you feel as though it might be you might be getting the voice of the creator, if you know what I mean. In other words, if you sense the distance between the creator, and I'm not saying there isn't, but if you sensed more watching it that there was an ironic distance between the creator and this character, he would feel less like a mouthpiece and you'd feel less as though the whole thing were heavy-handed. And in fact, there could be a kind of satire at his expense. I think the thing that will rescue it is if this open question of whether he's purely delusional...
2: Yeah, the Christian Slater character is definitely being staged in a way that he might possibly be a a kind of a Bruce Willis from The Sixth Sense. I'm only three episodes in, but there's some kinds of deep mythologies being planted where I think we're supposed to question whether when he goes to see Christian Slater in this Coney Island arcade where all the hackers hang out and do their F Society hacking, whether anyone is really there and certainly whether he and Christian Slater are are really interacting. Maybe another reason that this show doesn't really ring my bells is that I'm not an X-Files person. I'm really not like a deep mythologies and let's I'll just pull on these threads for hundreds of seasons and see how they come out kind of person. So I get sort of impatient to know, well, what exactly is the conspiracy that you're proposing here, Sam Ismail? And I think he wants us to wait patiently to figure that out.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the show is uh, Mr. Robot. It's on USA Network. Some people find it quite exhilarating. I think we have some hesitations. I think I'll stick with it and check it out for a few more episodes. Anyway, when and if you check it out, dear listener, come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culture Tell us what you think of it. All right. Moving forward. Julia, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. What do we what do we have?
0: Thanks, Steve. Our podcast this week is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Volvo is offering a wonder of summer event in which they'll cover a month's payment if you purchase a new Volvo so you can spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. I love having Volvo as a sponsor sponsoring summer fun because I, one of my most glorious New York summer memories is packing in my friend's old Volvo with like 10 girls to drive all the way out Flatbush to Jacob Reese Park and have a glorious summer day frolicking in the waves out there. And I remember people sitting in the way back of this glorious old station wagon that must have had 225,000 miles on it at that point and listening to whatever was coming on Hot uh, 100 that that day. And were you being stealthily filmed for a Volvo commercial? That sounds so appealing. <laughs> Not to my knowledge. To be honest, if we were being stealthily filmed for the Volvo commercial, there probably would have been a little bit less traffic and we might have been uh, listened to slightly fewer songs by Ja Rule. But <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> What can I say? It was, a, it was a glorious summer day. So in addition to that month's payment, you can get up to five years of full coverage, including wear and tear, the wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com slash US or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. All right, Steve, what's next?
1: All right, Julia, moving on. All right, Julia, I have to say for this third topic, I'm going to fully nakedly abdicate and throw the hosting duties to you. There's a mess, editorial slash business mess going on at Gawker Media, and uh, its intricacies I trust in your hands and not in mine. What do we have?
0: Sure. I will recap the fracas at Gawker. Um, So last Thursday, Gawker published a post in which they alleged that a relatively anonymous New Yorker, an executive at Condé Nast, had attempted to solicit sex from a male prostitute, although had not followed through on the assignation and had then been seemingly extorted or blackmailed by the prostitute. And the post revealed the name of the media executive but protected the name of the prostitute, and it was immediately met with widespread uproar across the web. Some of the concerns were that this guy was not su- a sufficiently public figure to have his sexual dalliances made public material. He's a relatively powerful guy in New York media, but married, has several children. You know, he was he wasn't a particularly public figure. He's certainly on the borderline. There was concern that the guy had been outed in the post. There was concern about why the guy's name had been exposed, but the uh, source and escort had been granted anonymity, who seemed to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist loon and who had wild theories about the Obama administration. The media executive was also related to a former member of the Obama administration, and that was where part of the extortion attempt came in. And so lots of disdain for this post, lots of questioning about why Gawker decided to publish it. Gawker's writers and editors, you know, took to the web in great numbers, some to say they didn't think the post should have been published, many to say they stood by it, that it was in keeping with Gawker's reputation as a kind of as a fearless gossip site, the kind of place where people share, you know, what journalists really talk about with each other behind the scenes. You know, that evening, the editor of Gawker, Max Reed, tweeted, given the chance, Gawker will always report on married C-suite executives of major media companies fucking around on their wives, you know, this is sort of the the tried and true ethos of Gawker. Love it or hate it, much of Gawker's editorial staff seemed to stand behind the post, as certainly in keeping with the Gawker ethos as it had been understood to that point. Then internal conflagration ensued. The following day, Nick Denton, the founding editor of Gawker and now its CEO, uh, chose to retract the post. They pulled the post down, uh, and he published a note apologizing for it and saying that it was not in keeping with Gawker's editorial standards. This decision then prompted the editorial director of Gawker Media, Tommy Craggs, and the editor in chief of Gawker.com, the flagship site, Max Reed, to resign. They both announced their resignations on Monday, arguing that the decision to retract the post, whatever you thought of its original merits... Uh, had been made exclusively by Nick Denton and other members of the managing board over the objections of Tommy Craigs, the editorial director, and that that was an unacceptable breach of the firewall between the business side and the editor, and that, you know, if – if they couldn't run media organization and a site confident that their editorial decisions would be respected by the publishing side, they didn't want to run it anymore. There's some dispute about the details of how that decision was made, which we can get into in our discussion. And I guess I should say also that, you know, in classic Gawker fashion, this has all played out with the kind of radical transparency that Gawker espouses and is known for, which means massive, fervent And principled airing of dirty laundry all over the place. So, you know, memos have been shared. Internal texts have been publicly posted. You know, you get a very real sense of the internal rhetoric around this decision and the debate that's happened at Gawker if you're following this.
2: Yeah, you know, Julia, when this whole Gawker story broke on Thursday night, it was the night before we have our meeting on Friday to talk about what our topic should be. And I sort of strongly felt that this did not rise to the level of a Slate Culture Gabfest Fest topic at that point, especially because, you know, we're recording days later and it sort of seemed like, you know, I myself found it sort of disgusting that they published what seemed to me to be almost a collusion with the, the extortionist, but it seemed like that story would just sort of die in the water. I do think, though, now that these editors have resigned and that there's all this internal strife at Gawker that's being exposed for the world to see because, as you say, of their policy of transparency, that it's starting to raise larger questions about what journalism means at that site, what journalism should mean, what does in general rise to the level of a publishable story at, at what news outlet and why?
1: Right. I mean, Julia, I'm looking for clear lines of villainy here and finding it hard to identify them. I mean, is this principally in your mind a story about a completely unmerited gay outing? that has earned the shame you know public shaming that it's receiving widely on the internet. I mean just to give one example, Glenn Greenwald of the Intercept says, I'm a fan of tweets, I'm a fan of Gawker and several of its journalists, but that article is reprehensible beyond belief. It is deranged to publish that. Or is this a story about editorial integrity and the business side Uh, and ownership and management should never interfere with editorial decision-making regardless of how dubious it might be. And then finally, I mean, is it about the lack of clear lines of villainy? In other words, you know, something like Gawker exists to disrupt traditional journalistic practices, and yet when in this new kind of uncharted territory of disruption something goes horribly wrong, people fall back on received roles, you know, i.e. editors start talking as if they're, the you know, Ben Bradley of The Washington Post defending Woodward and Bernstein when, up until the moment there was a conflict, they used the language of um, Silicon Valley di- disruption and the remaking of journalism. I guess I still need help on this,
0: well, I think it's complicated because there are two different moral dilemmas here, and they operate at exactly opposite valences. There's the original moral dilemma about why was this post published? should it have been published? What are Gawker's editorial standards? have they changed or should they change in the current media moment? And how have we all changed in our reception of Gawker over the past few years? And the broader context for this, of course, is that Gawker is embroiled in a trial. They've been sued by Hulk Hogan, the wrestler, because they published a sex tape showing Hulk Hogan uh, betting the wife of a pal of his. And the trial was recently postponed, but there's been a lot of coverage of Gawker's kind of radical First Amendment commitment to publishing whatever it deems interesting and newsworthy and its defense of itself in this case and its right to publish a selection. Celebrity sex tape. So there's been a lot of discussion recently, including you in know a great piece by Amanda Hess mm-hmm. on Slate about the evolution of Gawker over the years, and also our evolution as readers and our our perceptions of these things. And then there's the separate fight about the decision to take down the post that has led to you know the resignation of two senior staffers and much public rumination by Nick Denton on the current state of Gawker and and where it's headed. And you know there's been a lot of reporting about this conflagration and you know plenty of public sharing of. Of internal conversations by all parties associated with it. But I think the fundamental debate is between the editors who feel that essentially their editorial integrity was put to a vote and that the voice of the editor uh, was outweighed by you know the head of ad sales and a bunch of business reps and that that's an unacceptable position for an editor to be put in. And by the version of events that Nick Denton and, and other partners are now describing, which is that fundamentally the call was Nick Denton's as owner and CEO and someone who came out of uh, the editorial side of Gawker, and that it was a Denton decision and Denton's call and that the rest of the managing partners supported him. And I do think that that distinction really colors the way you look at it. So the thing that's tricky is is balancing these two things. And then, of course, balancing the rhetoric. Because one thing that's always striking about these Gawker events is that, you know, the public persona of Gawker is to be these kind of like scofflaw cool kids who, you know, disdain the polite niceties of manner journalism and will kind of fearlessly do anything. And I. Very much admire the aggression and fearlessness of Gawker. I think they are an important and really interesting media voice. Don't respect every decision they've ever made. I would not have published the post that they published, and there's plenty of other things they've published that I wouldn't publish, but I admire a lot of what they do. But there's a funny disjunction between their public persona of being these kind of scofflaw slackers in the back of the classroom-like kind of making fun of the rest of the world. Yeah, they're like Rami Malek in in Mr. Robot, right? In their little hoodies. (laughs) Right. And then the, like, deeply impassioned internal rhetoric, which feels, as you say, Steve, it feels discordant to have them arguing as though these are the Pentagon Papers when the thing that they're defending seems so ill-conceived. So I think that's part of why it's so muddled to discuss is that there are these two distinct moral quandaries. And in the one, I think Gawker is pretty clearly in the wrong. And in the other, the Gawker editors, I think, depending on what the events are, are in the right, or at least are their motives are understandable. But to stack the one moral quandary on top of the other creates this disjunction. But I'm curious, guys, what you have made of Gawker over the years. I mean, are you, do you feel like their general commitment to gossip and scandal is has value or is just reprehensible generally or that, you know, is this post reprehensible and in keeping with the general reprehensibility or did they weirdly cross the line that they're usually somehow on the right side of even though the line is drawn at Gawker very differently than it's drawn at other places?
2: Well, this post is not the first time they've outed someone, right? Or the first time that they've tried to get a celebrity to out himself. They had that whole Anderson Cooper, you know, for years they were sort of plaguing Anderson Cooper to, to, to out himself on the site, which is slightly different. But I mean, it still is an, It feels to me like an invasion of privacy, although arguably there it's with a more public figure. I don't know. I haven't really read Gawker regularly since Corey Seeker wrote for it. And I would read a roll of toilet paper if he wrote for it. But I don't have a real sense for where the site is at right now. I do know that when there was a big uproar about this particular doc of this, this person who sought out a male prostitute, I went and read it and was disgusted by it and did feel like it was something that just didn't rise to the level of newsworthiness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It was repulsive on its face, um, 100%. Also, Dana, I completely agree with you. To, to me, Gawker is a site that was defined completely by the voice of the one person controlling it back when it was really under the editorial control of, of, you know, one kind of commanding writer, editor. And then when it grew into something far larger and diverse, I lost interest in it, and it completely proof is in the pudding, whenever I approach the buffet of American free online journalism, I never, ever, ever bother to go to Gawker, never. Um,
2: but that said, we've had, we've had, for example, Adrian Chen on the show for a really excellent reported mm-hmm. piece that he That's wrote true. on Gawker, right, about the, uh, essentially about the sort of underbelly of the of the web. And so there's plenty of good reporting and writing going on at Gawker, whatever you may think of the values of the masthead, it appears to me.
0: No, I actually think that the, rep- you know, the aggressiveness of the reporting at Gawker is really to be commended and is much better in the last four or five years mm-hmm. than it was in the early kind of uh, voicey, musing era of Gawker, as huge an admirer of Corey and some of the other of that era of Gawker writers, as I am, um, you know, these guys are really good reporters. They get interesting tips, and they chase them down, and they verify them, and they generally, you know, publish stuff that other people don't get, and they, they get it, mm-hmm. and they often get it dead to rights. But I think your response is instructive, Steve. I mean, one of the things that, you know, to have excellent reporting, but about scurrilous subjects gives you a great responsibility to figure out where you're going to point that reporting prowess. And I think also does leave you susceptible to being written off by a portion of the reading population who's like, I just don't want to go there.
1: Right, exactly. And so the concept at the heart of the story really is judgment, editorial judgment. And a traditional media outlet would have had no problems with this whatsoever. They would have said this person scarcely rises to even the legal definition of a public figure. He, he has a right to a personal life that we should hesitate in violating, even if it's not protected by the black letter of the law. And the problem I have with the story is that a media outlet like Gawker congratulates itself on having evolved beyond the old traditional gatekeeping judgment of like, you know, Gawker is meant to, is to be a standing rebuke to the old media coziness where reputations are protected and there's a, a bit of a smoke-filled room, a circle of fairly fraternal intimates who decide what the public has a right to hear and what they don't, you know, based as much as anything on self-interest, it's an enormous act of self-congratulation to say that you can blow that up in its entirety without causing enormous damage. I mean, in other words, the whole business model is based on, I think, a somewhat fatuous notion that you can do away with editorial judgment altogether. And what's interesting to me is that the minute that that explosion actually blows up in your own face, people revert to extremely traditional roles, i.e., you know, management defending the organization in the face of advertising losses and editors standing on age-old principles of integrity. It's just fascinating. All right. Well, for those of you with a uh, distinct set of feelings about this very confusing situation, we'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash culture All right. Now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have?
2: This week, I'm going to endorse a graphic novel, which I think will make some listeners very happy because we're often getting flack from people for not talking about comics and anime and graphic novels and such things enough. And the fact is, I don't read that many. But I happen to come across this wonderful graphic novel called Never Good Night that just came out. Uh, it's translated from the Swedish. It's by Coco Moodison. And Coco Moodison is the wife of Lucas Moodison, the filmmaker who adapted this comic book into a, into a great, great movie that was on my 10 best list for 2013 called We Are the Best. So the story of the comic book is these three middle school girls. I guess maybe they're early high school. They're 12, 13 years old. Who get together, even though they can play no instruments whatsoever, and form a punk band, and uh, and it's also the story of their, you know, their various complicated family lives and the boys they like and the disintegrating marriages of their parents and so forth. But it's just illustrated with these great kind of I don't know how to describe them, just very wonkily drawn pictures and uh, kind of bad language. It's not necessarily suitable for kids, but it's a it's really really nice graphic novel, and I, I just love the fact that um that this woman wrote a graphic novel and her husband made it into a movie, and that they're both great. So having already, I believe, endorsed we are the best on the. Show uh, I'm now endorsing Never Goodnight by Coco Moodyson.
1: Oh my gosh, Sweden, Lucas Moodyson, punk girl bands. Uh, Dana, this is just uh, just ringing all my bells. Uh, Julia, what do you have?
0: I have one and a half endorsements. The half endorsement first. Sometimes I like to follow up when we discuss the pilot of a TV show and report back on whether I am still watching it or whether my views have changed. I am obsessed with Unreal. It's so good. This is the scripted series about the Bachelorette-style reality show that we discussed a couple weeks ago. And um, I think it is my favorite television drama, favorite new television drama since I don't know one. I can't think of another one that I've enjoyed as much. I think it's really smart really plot twisty. The performances are great. It is dark as fuck. I'm not sure it totally earns all of the plot twists. I don't think it's a perfect show. I don't think it's on the level of Breaking Bad or or something like that yet, but it is dark and smart and twisted as hell. And if you're not watching it, you should get on that train before you get on any of of any of the other... uh, Cable trains that are departing the station these days. So, what station is it on again? Lifetime. Oh yeah, queue up your lifetime, folks, and watch that Unreal. It is so good. And then the the full endorsement is over vacation a couple weeks ago. I finally saw John Wick. I believe this is a Keanu action movie that is dear to your heart, Dana.
2: <gasps> well, I haven't actually seen it. The reason it's dear to my heart is that in last year's movie club, Stephanie Zaharak who was a big fan of it wrote a a ballad to the uh, <laughs> to the dog. Right? Isn't there an important puppy in John Wick? There's an important puppy. <laughs> sniff, sniff, I'll say no more All I know is Stephanie loved Keanu and his relationship to his puppy so much That she wrote this sort of lyrical ballad to it And it's absolutely great That's another sub-endorsement Go read
0: Saharik on, on John Wayne It's an absurd, stylized, mannered, extremely gory, spirited and fun action movie Like if you want to watch a junk action movie Not a junk action movie If you, if you want to like rent a movie and be entertained Uh, It's delightful. Keanu plus puppy equals click. I'm sold. Keanu plus puppy plus mannered and uh, unbelievable underworld plus insane gore. (laughs) (laughs) Plus Willem Dafoe. Plus Willem Dafoe. What more do you need?
1: Uh, I love it. Um, All right. Well, my endorsement this week, uh, Julia, is a kind of compliment to yours in that it's a half an endorsement. So together, we average out to one each. It's uh, it's more a query than an endorsement at this point, but people whose judgment in genre fiction I trust, in fact, is the guy who turned me on to uh, the Jack Reacher novels by Lee Child, which are just so incredibly vacation yummy. I can't believe it. But he put me on to a new author who I've only just started dipping into, and I think he really might be onto something. Her name is Donna Leone. And she's actually an American author who lives in Venice and has lived in Venice for, I think, close to 30 years, writing a series of crime novels that feature the fictional detective Commissario Guido Brunetti. And the apparently the stories take you deep into the web of intrigue and, and corruption that is the Venice mun- municipal life, which she apparently knows quite well, but also into the you know, incredible beauty and cultural history of it. And they're very comic and beautifully realized. I know it seems bizarre to endorse them. I read, I typically read about, someone gives me a recommendation like this in genre fiction. I read three pages and I either fall asleep or throw it across the room in a pissy rage. It was terrific. I was totally sucked in and couldn't stop reading and then work intervened and I had to stop reading. But I'm both saying I'm confident that these are going to be great, and I'm also asking people to tell me whether they think they are if they've read them. So anyway, the author is Donna Leone, L-E-O-N, and the series are the Commissario Guido Brunetti detective books. Curious to know what people think of them. Uh, all right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia.
0: Thanks, Steve.
1: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht and Marissa Vichy. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is, of course, at Slate SlateCultFest for Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week.